Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Good afternoon. It is Friday, July 1st, and this is Noon Edition with Sarah Whitmire. I'm Stan Jastrzemski. This week, we're talking about prescription drug abuse in Indiana. And with us in studio are Indiana Drug Enforcement Agent Dennis Wishern, Courtney Stewart from the Indiana Prevention Resource Center, and Centerstone Director of Addictions, Linda Grove-Paul. Thanks to the three of you for being here today. Uh, You, the listener, can join our program by calling us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-WFIU. You can also leave a comment on our website, which is wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. Uh, I'd like to ask, first of all, and Dennis, I guess I'll start with you on this. Are, are there groups of people that your agency has identified as the most frequent abusers of prescription drugs, either by by age or so, by some other demographic factor? Uh not really. We mainly focus on the distributors or the people that are, you know, that are actually distributing it out there on the street. However, evidence that I've seen from the Centers of D- Disease Control and other uh, agencies like that show that it's generally a, a rural Caucasian drug. Uh, uh, a lot of the abuse starts maybe around 20 and can go all the way up to 50 years of age. Linda, Courtney, what do you guys uh, see in terms of people who are the ones who have, have the most misuse of, of prescription drugs? From a treatment standpoint, um, as Dennis said, you know, a lot of folks are white. Um, rural, I, I think one of the things that's really interesting is prescription drug abuse is uh, by far the fastest growing uh, form of drug abuse. Um, and that the prevalence is as strong in rural communities as, as, it, as it is in urban communities. Uh, which really makes it pretty different um, and certainly very much affects a large portion of Indiana. As you said, it is rural. Um, it is white and a lot of females. We really, from a treatment standpoint, we see a lot more women um, that have problems with pres- prescription drug abuse. What about elderly people? How do they fit into this with prescription drug abuse? How many are just misusing prescriptions? A lot of folks fit into this. I mean, that's part of the the Mm -hmm. issue is availability. Um, Prescription drugs are available for just about uh, anybody at any point in time. You go to the doctors. uh, It's very easy to get uh, prescription drugs. Um, It's, I think, uh, we were just talking before the program, actually, anywhere from... um, Ten to six times the the growth of prescription or opiate drug abuse in the last fifteen years. Um, so you're looking to anywhere from six hundred to a thousand percent increase in the use of opiates uh, in the last fifteen years. So it really every demographic uh, has really been impacted by this. Are there certain substances that tend to be abused more than others? From the research that I've looked at, we find that prescription painkillers, things like hydrocodone, Oxycontin, Percocet, are widely abused, more so than things like stimulants, Adderall, um, Ritalin. So it tends to be the opiate-based painkillers that have been very popular and are increasing in usage. And what do you find about Um, the reaction by the people who are prescribing those sorts of drugs to the fact that they are eventually being misused by whoever the end user is. Uh, I mean, are are doctors, medical professionals um, surprised when they hear that that this is going on or do they feel maybe on the other side culpable in some way? It's hard to say. I mean, I think some doctors feel like they're in a bind. They want to treat their patients and make sure that they get pain relief because pain medication is definitely a necessity, you know, it's a necessity for many people. Um, On the other hand, they do, they are aware that certain patients are coming in and, you know, with the same complaints or a new complaint that requires a prescription for a pain medication. So it's, it's a difficult spot for doctors to be in. 
or yeah, anyone and, prescribing. In many ways, it's really a societal issue, too. I mean, mm-hmm. just the ease of getting prescriptions. And when you look at pharmaceutical companies, um, they're continuing to manufacture new drugs. You know, there's an iteration of an iteration of an iteration. Um, and I think doctors are really trying to engage in what they consider to be best practice. Um, but oftentimes in terms of that pain management um, and particularly as we live in a society where people are looking for kind of the, the quick fix, um, I want something and I want to, I want to feel better right away. Um, and unfortunately, part of the reason for the abusability of the opiates is it, they are so effective and they so quickly affect your brain chemistry, uh, which is part of the, the reason why that tends to be used more than something else is because it has very addictive properties. Um, so I think it's a, a question of access and best intentions as far as the prescribers are concerned, but that the consumers then really find a lot of value in in the drugs that have been prescribed to them. So in what I was reading, it it said um, that a lot of these these drugs were making their way into the market because they were left over in medicine cabinets and things like that. So, I mean, are doctors prescribing too many? That can be an issue. Doctors might be prescribing too many. It's hard I think it's difficult for patients and doctors to understand to qualify pain. You know, how much pain are you in? How many pills should I prescribe you at one time? Should you come back and see me before I give you more? And different doctors have different practices. Some doctors may give someone a refill on a pain medication, and another doctor may just give a person six pills and say, you know, come see me again. So it's it's hard to tell well, and I think how it much really, pain someone's in. It really does go back to the fact that it – it is so potentially addictive that it is one of those things that is in your medicine cabinet and maybe you used it and you used it exactly as prescribed and you didn't realize, you know, and particularly when you talk about the elderly or, you know, I had a surgery on my thumb and I came home with hydrocodone and that's sitting in my medicine cabinet and I don't realize that maybe that has a street value of $20 uh, a pill in the high school. And just by merit of sitting in the medicine cabinet and having access to something that you would think, well, it's prescribed by a doctor. Um, So that looks pretty harmless. It's not like cocaine or heroin or or pot. So that access, you know, definitely is a real issue for a lot of people. I'm sure Dennis can probably come on on that a little bit, too. You know, the uh, you said what the lady said is the the Journal of Urology uh, had a study in it this past February. And... uh, the study disclosed two-thirds of the patients prescribed narcotic painkillers or these, these opiates we're talking about, and, and it's the hydrocodones, the oxycodones, and even methadone, which is very, very dangerous if misused. Uh, two-thirds of the patients prescribed these drugs had leftover pills after, you know, their, their pain subsided or their surgery subsided. Uh, and then the... Uh, it also said that more than 90% of the patients in the uh, little over 200 study was given no instructions by the doctors or the pharmacists what to do with the unused pills. And the author of the study, a Dr. Corey Bates, said because of that, he's going to start cutting his uh, prescription amounts in half. And uh, the uh, just like Linda said, one of the things DA did with uh, a bunch of great law enforcement partners, we've we've done these take back programs, and we were far from the first to do it. But it was for that reason to get the drugs out of the medicine cabinet have been sitting there, and everybody knows you don't want to flush them because it gets in our drinking water, and then give them back to law enforcement so we can incinerate them and and take that. Uh, that threat away that somebody might go into somebody's house or a young adult might make a bad decision and go to their parents' medicine cabinet and get those drugs. Would you like to see more either regulation on the part of, say, state legislatures in terms of what you can do in Indiana to regulate prescription drugs or would you like to see something like the American Medical Association come out and tell doctors – look, you need to be more careful about how you're prescribing these drugs because we understand that the end use is not always what you're prescribing it for. Uh, great question. The uh, two parts, the, uh, you know, the, in, the state of Indiana just passed a law that should make uh, take-back programs easier, uh, and they're still coming up with the regulations, so you might possibly be able to give your old, your, your old and unused drugs back to your pharmacist for destruction. 
but they're still, I believe, developing the regulations. Uh, the other ones uh, uh, Linda and Courtney kind of made reference to is there's always been this argument pain's been undertreated in the past, and now maybe it's been treated better to address it. And how do you find that happy medium? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've talked with uh, uh, an addiction doctor who said, you know, a lot of practitioners out there uh, are handing this stuff out way too much because he's dealing with all the pain and misery that he sees from the back inside when they come to him. Uh, there's a couple great organizations. There's a whole set of rules by the Federation of State Medical Boards how to treat pain and certain guidelines, uh, urine tests, uh, the inspect program, all these ways to kind of gauge yourself if you're in line. ASIP's another you know, organization of medical practitioners who just deal in pain. They have a whole set program. So, you know, it, it's out there. There's some good guidelines. You know, a lot of the people we see when we charge somebody criminally, a practitioner and or a doctor, is most of them really don't have any pain treatment. Schooling. I mean, they they are mm-hmm. they are not they never went to school and the all the little finer points and. How do you assess pain? How do you check and balance it? Uh, but uh, so the laws are there. Uh, good question. No, I'm not. Well, that's think, a tough one. Yeah, and I think there's several things that you brought up. One, I think you should talk a little bit about inspect because that is really a very useful tool. Um, and I know from the standpoint of our, our psychiatrists, at least. Um, at Centerstone, we use that really regularly, particularly with our our, our addictions uh, clients. But I, I think there's some real underutilization of this, and I think this is a great u- resource for prescribers and for pharmacists. Well, what is Inspect? Okay, the uh, it's if I get it right here, the Indiana <laughs> Narcotics. Can't remember the acronym. Long story short, it's a computer program where every prescription that's given to a patient in Indiana goes into a computer system. So, for instance, I went to my doctor and I got a prescription for hydrocodone. It would show up in in inspect and it would only be viewable by the practitioner or the pharmacist and a small amount of law enforcement. But the goal is, and it's one of 38 programs like it across the nation, and they're, they're called prescription drug monitoring programs. And the goal is to, let's say Linda's the doctor, I come in, uh, and want a prescription by her, she would do due diligence and check my name in the program to be sure that I wasn't getting a uh, prescription from Courtney. And that's what we call in, in our business, we see doctor shoppers, mm-hmm. one addict or one user going to multiple doctors to get the same prescription. A program like Inspect works good where if you use it, you can identify it and sit down with the patient or get them their help or send them you know, somebody that can help them with their addiction because they're they're misusing the system. And it's a resource that really needs to definitely be utilized. Now, the doctor shopping, sometimes people go over state lines. Um, That's and true. So people will travel. for the state of Indiana. So if you go to Kentucky right. or you go to Ohio. They may not have um, a system like Inspect. Mm-hmm. And from a prevention standpoint, education is extremely important. And Dennis mentioned that a lot of doctors and people with authority to prescribe don't have a lot of knowledge of addiction. They're seeing people that are in pain. Their job is to treat pain and, you know, to to make people well again. Um, so education for pharmacists, um, doctors, patients, you know, about addiction and you know, if a doctor suspects that someone's addicted, they can do screening, you know, ask a few questions, do a brief intervention. Um, we're seeing a rise that it's called the acronym is ESPERT, Screening, Brief Intervention, Referral, and Treatment, where a doctor or someone who has prescribing authority, if they, you know, are trained and realize that someone may have an addiction, they can ask a few questions, and if they feel like there's a problem, you know, they can give the patient some information, give them a referral, even a brochure, just to get them thinking a little bit more about, you know, the drugs that they are using, even if they're prescribed. Is there a problem with people getting these drugs, I guess, just from non-reputable places? I'm thinking just with the rise in getting drugs off yes. the Internet. Absolutely. 
Yeah, the internet is definitely an issue, although it isn't near, I mean, as I was kind of preparing for this, looking at the number, it's it's typically just still one to two to three percent in terms of the number of people. It really is more doctor shopping. And I think in terms of prevention and education, um, particularly as you mentioned before, Stan, as far as prescribers, I think that that is really important. And part of what I was talking about is how addictive opiates really are is it it not only affects your physical pain, it very much has an impact on emotional pain. Um, and as a treatment provider, that's part of the reason why we see uh, women have a tendency to have more susceptibility to the opiates mm-hmm. uh, in general is if you have a history of trauma, if you've got, you know, other things, maybe depression, other things that are going on, that euphoria that is um, kind of a part of what you get from the opiate in addition to the pain you also get euphoria. You potentially may have a lot of additional energy. So it becomes a real reinforcer. And then physical dependence comes along too. And then you actually need it. Um, So you're going to do whatever you can to try to get it. And it's pretty easy still to get from doctors. I want to go back to um, a point Dennis was making earlier. Um, some doctors, I mean, and as Courtney said, you know, I think intentions are, you know, for the most part, almost always very, very good. Um, but I think recognizing uh, the access and availability to pain meds at this point and the addictability is really critically important for the prescribers. And there are some practices where they have put great pieces in place to say, you know, yes, I'm prescribing you a narcotic uh, drug, but I need for you to sign a contract because if I believe for any reason, maybe prescriptions have gone missing several times or you've had to get multiple refills or you've come in multiple times or you've been on for too long, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to urine screen you. Um, and, and one of the issues really as far as diversion is concerned is a lot of people are going in and they're getting prescription meds and they're not using them for themselves. They may go in and talk about a, a chronic pain condition that they have that's difficult to verify, like uh, my or perhaps, you know, some sort of a back problem, something like that. Uh, And they may get that prescription and they may actually sell those drugs on the street. So, you know, you have to really actually be concerned not only is the person using more than they're supposed to, but are they using it at all? And I've heard lots of stories of elderly actually supplementing their income. I have to. You know, by actually going and getting, you know, pain medication. So sometimes it's the people that you might not suspect. They don't necessarily look like, you know, people who are abusing drugs might not look as, you know, a stereotypical drug abuser. It would seem at that point you'd be getting into the realm of Medicare fraud and mm-hmm. things of that nature as well. Mm-hmm. I want to remind our listeners, you can call in at 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also go to WFIU.org slash Noon Edition and you can join our conversation online there. Um, I wanted to ask about these unused drugs. What incentive would I have to give the drugs back? Uh, I, I went to the dentist a week ago. I had a root canal. He prescribed me, you know, pain medication. I, I got 20 tablets. I've used two. I have 18 unused tablets sitting at home that I'm probably never, ever going to need to use. You might more. not want to say that on yeah. the air. <laughs> People come in yeah, on people you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a figure up. of speech. Um, <laughs> what, what incentive do I have to give those back or get rid of them? What, what would stop me from thinking, well, maybe I'll have pain somewhere mm-hmm. in the future or maybe my, my wife or my children will have pain and it'll be good to have this around in that event? I think you hit on a key point right there. That's why there are so many people holding on to prescriptions because, you know, someone pulls a muscle, someone has a dental procedure, you know, someone has a migraine and, you know, mom or dad has a prescription and they're, you know, here, take this, it'll make you feel better. A lot of this has to do, and we talked about this earlier, the perception of prescription medications as being safe. They're prescribed by a doctor, they're FDA approved, and they're not perceived in the same way you know, you would give someone cocaine or heroin if they had a headache. But if you have a doctor prescribed prescription medication in your home and someone has a migraine or something, it's, it's you know, people are keeping them for those reasons. 
So what can we do to convince people that, that is an improper course of action and that they should be giving them back to agencies like Dennis's so they can be properly disposed of? I think the reality is just recognizing how dangerous potentially they are to anybody who's in, in your home or, you know, again, robbery. That is, I mean, I, I mentioned that sort of joking. I, I was going to say, you pointed, I, I didn't even consider it when I was saying it that, that there might be a crime aspect of right. this Right. Oh, thing. there absolutely is. And in fact, part of the whole purpose of the disposal is if somebody is on regular pain medications, you need to be really careful that when you dispose of the bottles, you take the labels off because oftentimes people mm-hmm. are looking through trash. They're trying to see, oh, is somebody prescribed narcotics at this home? This would be a great place for me to to go get my fix. So there definitely is sort of an element. And I think recognizing the severity, one thing we haven't talked about is – uh, prescription main, uh, pain medication is the greatest cause of overdose dose, de- and death um, for people in the United States at this point in time. So, you know, I think recognizing the risk potentially that it poses to your family. Um, if you say you have children in the home, it may not even be your own children. If they're young children, maybe it's not as much of an issue. But once they hit that middle school to high school age, again, once you hear about the street value, even if you're not thinking about taking it yourself, oftentimes, as, as both Courtney and Jenna said, this perception of, ah, it's not that big of a deal if my mom's got it, you know, it's sitting around. Or maybe mom sometimes will just give me, you know, yeah, because she had this procedure. She has mm-hmm. a Percocet. She'll give it to me. But then they like that euphoria that they got from that, that you actually might be inadvertently creating a problem um, in your own home. And I think the other thing that's really important to understand is particularly with children, I think they said 60% of 12th graders who said that they used uh, prescription pain medication got it from their friends or their relatives. Um, so that's that's how it's starting. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes, and the people who are addicted to prescription pain medication in particular have a tendency to be younger. I do just want to touch on something that both of you were talking about, this idea that these drugs really, if, I, if I'm understanding right, can't be, can't be as harmful because they're prescriptions. They can't be as harmful as cocaine because a doctor is giving this to you. Right. How do you – I mean, I would be a tough sell on that. How do you get that across to somebody that these are just as dangerous? I think we come back to things like education, you know, and and your example of receiving 20 tablets, you know, hypothetically for a root canal of, you know, hydrocodone. Doctors need to, you know, okay, maybe I'll give you five or six so that people don't, you know, use them and then have leftover so that they Mm -hmm. can't say, well, I know you've got a migraine here, take this, you know, just reducing the amount that's prescribed. You know, and insurance companies play a role in this as well in that, a lot of insur- a lot of insurance companies will give benefits if you you know are prescribed something if you get thirty days or ninety days worth of it it's cheaper so sometimes doctors will write prescriptions because they're helping their patient out they're saving them money you know and then you've just got a lot of pain meds coming at mm-hmm. one time you know to someone's home well and I think That's that really just... goes back to that societal issue I mean we mm-hmm. actually really do have to treat prescription medication very much the same way you would any control. I mean, it is a controlled substance for a reason. Um, And that I think it is really important to educate, again, not just the community, but definitely prescribers. And that's a perfect example of, you know, how many scripts do you need and infinitely refilling. I mean, we've been talking a lot about opiates, but um, also if you look at uh, the anxiolytics, which is more the tranquilizers or things that people have for sleep aid, uh, benzodiazepam like Xanax, people use for anxiety. Um, that is intended to be used, those kinds of things are intended to be used for short term, not long term. If you look up, you know, any, you know, medical journal, they're saying if you have an anxiety issue or panic attacks, you should be using this for a short period of time, not intended for long term. And oftentimes people are being prescribed medications for, for years, 
Um, and I think, you know, we need to be educated ourselves so that we can ask our doctors, mm-hmm. is this really the best course of treatment? Do I need to have, you know, infinite refills? And it's sort of that temptation of, you know, if somebody's given it to me, you know, oftentimes people are inadvertently, from a treatment standpoint, we have people who come in that their intention wasn't to become addicted. Right. That just happened because of an injury or it happened mm-hmm. because of an anxiety disorder. Well, we've reached the bottom of the hour here. We need to take a quick break here on Noon Edition. We're talking about prescription drug abuse in Indiana. You can call us during the break and get in your phone calls as we begin the second half of our show. The phone numbers are 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcast directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. Programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, The Ether Game, Musical Mini Quiz, as well as Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Find out more at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Fridays, the WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 11.33 a.m., 11.55 a.m., and 5.45 p.m. to catch that day's feature. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. We are back on Noon Edition talking this week about prescription drug abuse in Indiana. With us are Indiana Drug Enforcement Agent Dennis Wishern, Courtney Stewart from the Indiana Prevention Resource Center, and from Centerstone, Linda Grove Paul. Uh, we talked a lot in the, the first part of the program about some of the, the problems. I, I'd like to try to, if we can, get to some more solution-based conversation in the second half of the show. And I wonder, are there... Are there numbers or are there statistics that are promising in any way that might lead to more discussion about how to solve some of these issues? Are there uh, – Dennis, you mentioned a couple of studies that are being done that I think would at least alert people to some of the problems. But are, are there numbers that you're aware of that you'd like people to be more cognizant about that can perhaps lead to um, – either better informing people of the danger of what it is that they're doing to themselves or uh, maybe a, a treatment or a, an information campaign that can help to stem the tide of the problem. Well, in the, in the numbers part, Stan, and, and to uh, kind of reply to Sarah's previous question, the uh, drug overdose deaths were second only to motor vehicle deaths during the last reportable year. So, you know, we lose a lot of people in motor vehicle or car crashes. Prescription drugs are killing people, and that, that's the leading cause right behind drug, you know, car crashes. And then lastly, uh, I get a lot of my stats from the Centers from Disease Control down in Atlanta. And uh, one good thing about that organization, it's well-written, it's easy to read, and things like that. But the uh, poisoning deaths increased from about 4,000 in 1999 to almost 14,500 in 2007, almost tripled. Uh, and like the ladies mentioned, we got to educate and get the information out. There's, then fight this perception that these things are safer because they're being misused and, and killing a lot of young adults and people. And then you combine them with alcohol and the benzodiazepines, and the number even goes up higher. And then if we throw in methadone, that one will take you right through the roof because that's a, you know, it's it did. Methadone's used to a drug that's got good uses, but it's often misused, and that puts a lot of people in the grave too. Well, why do you suppose that message seemingly is not getting to people, especially young people? I mean, we uh, we were talking with uh, Dan Goldblatt, one of our reporters, um, in the office just before the show, and he said, "Yeah, I know a number of people in my high school class who have died from overdoses," and so. It's clear, at least to me, that it's hitting home for people, that people know mm-hmm. that there are people who have serious problems here and people who have died from this. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder why that message is not clear as a bell to more people. I think it's becoming more clear. I think we're reaching a point where we're beginning to really understand the scope of the problem. Um, 
And I think with awareness comes more education. You know, on our website, we have a section called Keep RX Safe. And we recently had a contest where we had high school kids get involved and make they made PSAs or public service announcements about um, the dangers of prescription drugs. So by, you know, locally trying to get people aware and involved, um, you know, efforts are being made, but it's going to take a lot of efforts. So, Is it harder to see and, I guess, catch people who are abusing prescription drugs than it is other drugs like cocaine and other Possibly. I mean, if you have a prescription and your name's on it and it's legally yours, you know, being taking prescription pain medication doesn't look the same as someone who's done a bunch of heroin or done a bunch of cocaine. They might appear to be normally functioning, particularly if they have an addiction and they're able to take several pills a day. So it doesn't look the same. You know, it's not the same physical. And again, just going back to that, it's more socially acceptable Mm -hmm. because a doctor is prescribing it than it is if you're buying it off the street. So the perception really is a huge issue. And I think going back to talking about uh, prescribers, um, oftentimes um, in med schools, they don't do much. um, If I mean, you know, definitely a number of prescribers I know say, you know, no real formal training in addiction and really understanding that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really a huge part of the issue as well. And Courtney was mentioning kind of the screening and brief intervention um, initiatives. And this idea really is is that your doctor, your prescriber, is really the person who is definitely the first defense and the best person to really address this issue with people. And if you talk to them, you know, kind of up front about what some of the concerns are and going back to your example, Stan, if somebody says to you, look, I'm going to give you, you know, 12, you know, if you take the the three and you don't need any more, then you should really dispose of it. That's, uh, you'd probably feel differently about it than you would if, I mean, because this is just a norm. Is I mean, it's a norm for all of us, I think. It's just you get a prescription, you leave it in your cabinet. If mm-hmm. you need something later or somebody else in the family needs it, then, you know, you have it there. But it's like having cocaine in your cabinets, I guess. I, and I think that's really the probably the best analogy is recognizing that it really does have a danger and that that upfront education piece is really important from the doctor. Right. And the perception of addiction as a character flaw or a weakness rather than what it actually is, which is a, a disease. You know, and again, I'll bring up insurance, but if insurance companies would do more on their part to be inclusive about, you know, having recovery and treatment covered, you know, under those plans, people might be more willing to seek help. But, you know, a lot of the times it's very difficult for someone who's in recovery or having an addiction and they need maybe inpatient treatment. They can't afford it. It's not well, covered by their insurance. Or And the other piece I was going to say is oftentimes when people come to us, it's because their disease has progressed to the point that they're involved in the criminal justice system. So that, again, there's a pretty big gap from a little bit of it experimentation and prevention to they're really actually involved in the criminal justice system um, at that point and have such a significant problem that there are a lot of other, you know, physical and emotional consequences that go along with that. You brought up the idea of getting instruction from your physician when you're prescribed Mm -hmm. medication. And it occurs to me that that my experience in any time I've been prescribed medication is just handed a script and told you know, basically, here's how often you should take it and here's where you can get it filled. I'm not given any explanation of why I should take this versus aspirin or Tylenol or something. Mm -hmm. And I'm not given any explanation of the chemical differences between the two, what they will do to my body, Mm -hmm. why one is more effective, especially in in quick relief of pain than the other is, do we need to institute more rules and regulations on what doctors are required to tell their patients about the chemicals that they are ingesting? I think if doctors had more time, I'm not making excuses for doctors, but, you know, again, with the whole medical system and the healthcare system, doctors often have to see you know, X amount of patients per hour, and they don't have, you know, they want to go in, they want to find the problem, and they want to help the patient by prescribing something. And, you know, we have a lot of um, people taking medications for all kinds of things because the pharmaceutical industry is advertising 
at phenomenal rates. So, you know, people see something on TV, well, I can't sleep. Maybe I should see about that Lunesta. My doctor will give it to me. And, you know, the, the amount of time between doctor and patient is very limited. It's true. And I think at the same point in time where it's it's kind of a dangerous and obviously we're not prescribing and mm-hmm. we're, none of us are saying, you know, trying to have an, an indictment against no. doctors. Def- definitely not. They're um, in because, a tough position. Yeah, they are in a p- tough position. But I do think that that level of accountability, as you said, you know, you are t- – if you're prescribing a controlled substance – It is controlled because it is highly addictive and, you know, mood altering and that there are other potential consequences that may go along with that. And I think people really do need to have access to the information and the education that they need. For example, and physicians are are now doing a better job, but, but just screening. Are they screening their patients to determine whether or not they have a problem with alcoholism or they actually already maybe have an addiction? Are they looking at the inspect report? Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why we brought that up. Is this somebody who does have a history of doctor shopping? They've got, you know, so yeah, I really don't want to prescribe anything to you, Dennis, because I see, you know, you actually just got a, a script filled, you know, last week by, by another doctor. Um, family history is another, you know, really significant issue. That makes you much more susceptible to having an addiction. So that, and those are things that I'm increasingly seeing on forms. I was with my daughter at a doctor's appointment the other day and they were asking, mm-hmm. you know, the questions about alcohol and drug abuse. And that's, those are really important questions to be asking as well. I want to get to our first phone caller of the afternoon. Drew is on the line from Columbus. Drew, thanks so much for calling in to Noon Edition today. Thank you. Uh, I am a pain management physician in Columbus, so I've been interesting uh, listening to your program with a great deal of interest. And I have a few comments you might find helpful. Uh, one is this dramatic increase in the abuse of prescription medications over the last 15 years corresponds quite precisely to an effort on the part of the federal government coming out of the 1980s and into the early 1990s. The impression among many policymakers, probably an accurate impression, was that pain was undertreated. And there was a great effort at that time to have a, uh, physicians become more aware of this, more amenable to treating pain including the use of potent pain medications. Many physicians were encouraged to overcome their own fear of prescribing opioids, and many of them did do so. Well, uh, this has been an unintended consequence of that. Tell me, Drew, do you think there's been an overreaction in some ways? No, I'm one who still thinks that uh, many people's pain is undertreated. (laughs) So, you know, we have all sorts of issues in our society and in our practices to balance. But uh, I would say that society in general is more tolerant of substance abuse. We've noted that already. In my practice, precisely because I routinely prescribe exactly the medications you've been speaking of, we use all the tools that you've also mentioned. We use the inspect reports. We use urine drug screening. Uh, we use a pain psychologist to help us uh, talk to at least some of our patients. And so we're, we're quite prepared to deal with uh, the troubled patients who come our way. Uh, people who are most susceptible to this, uh, unless, unless they're pain management physicians who aren't practicing good medicine, people who are really vulnerable are very busy primary care physicians and perhaps some surgeons. Uh, who have many, many other problems to address. And by the time the patient gets around to saying, oh, by the way, doc, can I have a refill on my bike? Um, this is just about over. And uh, physicians, especially primary care physicians these days, are underpaid, overworked, over-hassled with regulation and paperwork. Uh, it's pretty easy to manipulate some of them. Others are very careful about this, and yet others, particularly in my community, uh, don't manage these uh, medications on a long-term basis, and they send them to people like me who they know are prepared to deal with them. 
All right, Drew, thanks so much uh, for calling in. That was, uh, I think, a good insight to, to add to the program and, and good to hear absolutely from a medical professional. Uh, and, and, and Drew brings up, I think, an interesting point that, you know, there are we, – we talked earlier about the, the issue of doctor shopping and we talked about, you know, the, the responsibility on the part of medical professionals. And, you know, his field is pain management. He would seem to be particularly attuned to making sure that these – issues are not there, but he brings up the issue of, you know, what if you've had a surgery or something like that, and those people are having to move on to, you know, uh, performing another operation perhaps that same day. Here's your prescription. I need to get going. I need to move along. Otherwise, my day is going to be 16 hours long. Um, It seems like there's a, a resource problem here on the part of doctors, on the part of agencies like yours. How do we how do we solve the resources issue? I think that Drew has brought up. I know there's not an easy answer to that, Dennis. What about I mean your, your agency? You know, I probably could use more money to help solve these problems, more people to help police them, things like that. Just as a start, I would imagine. Well, you know, I think every organization that, and with the ladies here too, you know, if we had more resources, we could do more. But you know, and these are you know tough times, and, and we we all have to do with what we have. Uh, one thing Drew did say, well, and uh, uh, I congratulate him for it, the, the way he's doing his practice. Uh, there was a study not too long ago. I might sound like the study guy, but the uh, it was really the doctors that Drew kind of mentioned were the ones that were getting into trouble. It really isn't the pain people that have actually the training and the specialities, and, and they do the urine test and the pill counts and the contracts and the inspects and all these good things to uh, prevent. It's the, uh, I think, the study, and I'm trying to find it here, but it's the family practitioners uh, and uh, one other, uh, maybe the cardiologist, that just might not have that. And they were the ones getting in trouble with, you know, law enforcement and the medical board for, you know, not prescribing adequately or illegitimate prescribing. Yeah, I I really want to applaud Drew because um, I think that that is kind of the exception. And that's not to say that there aren't some really good pain management folks Mm -hmm. that are out there because there definitely are. But those tools that he says that they're using, that is is pretty unique. And I think when you were talking about what are the solutions, those really are the solutions that you actually really do need to, to take the steps to manage. And his other point, which was a really important one and something I had been thinking about earlier, was just about, he was talking about the accreditation body. JCO is the Joint uh, Accreditation for Community Health Organizations, I believe. But he was saying that about 15 years ago, and he's absolutely right because I can remember when we were being accredited, they were saying you're under-treating pain, mm-hmm. you're under-treating pain, you're under-treating pain. Um, and that really is sort of when there was an explosion of um, Pain, pain treatment at that time. So I think that that definitely does correspond. It seems almost, I mean, forgive me for saying so, but it seems almost a little unreasonable to think that if you've had a medical procedure where you've been cut open or had something removed, that there's not going to be some sort of pain. Right. I mean, uh, is that... Is that so hard a sell to patients that, look, this is not going to be a completely painless thing because we've done something somewhat Mm -hmm. unnatural to your body and it needs time to heal? No, I think that's right. And I think what Drew brought up is, yeah, I think we've spent so much time on the one side. I really do want to mention pain is legitimate. I mean, pain medication. I I second that. I mean, there is a legitimate need for pain medication. You know, people that have various diseases or, you know, are dying or giving birth, you know, pain medication has its place. Yes. It absolutely does. And sometimes people who have cancer or chronic pain problems or concern, I'm going to be addicted. And it's like, no, you know, as long as you take your pain medicine as you're prescribed Mm -hmm. and that you're asking these questions. So I think it is really important that we're balanced in that. So I agree. I want to get to a comment we have here from Sarah. And she she also says that our, our conversation is focused a lot on pain medications. And she wants to know if we could talk about the widespread misuse of ADHD drugs in Indiana, especially by middle, high school, and college students. Yeah. Thoughts on that? I think I have some stats here. Let me look. You can talk about the stats. I can say anecdotally um, in terms of the the number of people who come in, particularly younger people who are abusing 
um, Adderall and Ritalin um, is is definitely great. That is a great problem. And a lot of people, particularly on campus, mm-hmm. uh, have a tendency to abuse it. Um, it says it makes them st- study harder, longer, enhances their performance um, in tests. But yeah, that's kind of... That's pretty much what I would echo as far as why they're using it. I have some statistics from the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. And according to the 2009, this is their 2009 data, 12.4% of Indiana 9th through 12th graders have used prescription drugs such as Adderall, Ritalin, or Xanax without a doctor's prescription in the last 30 days. So... It is a problem um, in high school students, among high school students, and also among college students as people try to write papers and perform and, you know, they want to be up all night because they have so much to do. Um, Our center does a survey called the Indiana Drug Survey. It's for alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs. And we've been surveying, we survey high school, 6th through 12th graders, and We have recently started asking the question about Ritalin, Adderall, and Xanax. So hopefully within the next couple of years, we will have trend data to show and, you know, help people recognize what's going on in various communities with those rates of use so they can plan prevention programming and And again, I think there's a lot of education that needs to happen Mm -hmm. around that and that oftentimes it is fairly easy to have access to those kinds of medications. Um, And once you have it and, again, you have sort of that feeling that says, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm supercharged. Look at Mm -hmm. all that I can do. There becomes a desire to repeat and kind of continue to chase that. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is you keep needing more to kind of get the same effect. And then your brain chemistry begins to change, too, to the point where you actually really need it Mm -hmm. to perform the way that you did before. So it's a big, vicious circle. So we talk about, yeah, sort of just kind of getting into it in the very beginning, but it becomes very reinforcing and physiologically a problem Mm -hmm. for folks as well. I've been around college kids for I don't don't know how many years now, and it before I came here, I was at a, a university in Missouri, and I do recall one of my students saying, if you go to the health center and say you're having trouble concentrating, mm-hmm. they'll give you a prescription. So I think this is really interesting what you're saying here, and in terms of just the education, clearly, mm-hmm. clearly, and probably an issue there with having too many, too yeah. many kids to see as well. Well, I think there's probably some diversion going on with those drugs as well. My little brother uses Ritalin or Adderall. A lot of younger kids are diagnosed with ADHD. And, you know, they may be taking medications from someone that they know as well rather than even getting it prescribed. They may have access that way. And I want to go back to a point I think Stan was making earlier is that there there are oftentimes non-narcotic alternatives to things. Um, so, I mean, for ADHD, there are non-narcotic alternatives. Um, there are definitely some for pain as well as um, anxiety, too. And, again, sometimes they're not as much the quick fix. Mm-hmm. Um, but there really is, I mean, you know, you really want to look at your options and you want to be educated in terms of, you know, what is it that I'm ingesting or my child mm-hmm. is ingesting and what are the chances of, you know, them potentially having a problem mm-hmm. and how do I continue to supervise this? You know, because some people legitimately need it. We're lucky. We're fortunate mm-hmm. to be in a society where we have access to all of these great resources, but it's a double-edged sword. I want to get to this question real quick we have from Lee. She writes, if a parent or family member passes away leaving medications, will the pharmacy that filled the script take that back? And if so, are there laws or regulations which specify how the pharmacy disposes of them? Uh, currently, uh, the pharmacist can't take them back. Uh, Cannot? cannot. Uh, the new state law is going to change that. I'm not sure if the regulations are out yet, uh, but the whole controlled substance prescription drugs, uh, when it was the laws behind it were formed, they call it a closed system. So you can track it from the manufacturer all the way to the ultimate user. These, these laws were made in the mid-70s. They never thought about how the drugs come back into the system. So to answer your question, she could destroy them herself. That's perfectly legal. Or B, call our local law enforcement. Uh, I know Bloomington PD does it, but 
There's several sheriff's offices and police departments around the state that you could drop them off there, and then the law enforcement will destroy them for you. That's a, a better alternative. Seems like the system could be improved if it was a two-way door where they could go mm-hmm. out from the pharmacy mm-hmm. but also back into the pharmacy at the end if they're not you know, being used. Very true, Stan, and, and, and that's what the state's working on. The feds are looking at laws like that, too. Ours should come out at the end of the, sometime this fall, but the question always comes out, how do you prevent diversion? Uh, the closed system, the big manufacturer makes it, it goes to the distributor, it goes down to the pharmacist. It's tracked the whole way. The, pharma, the practitioner, the doctor writes the script. Nobody thought, how do you get it back in, and then how are you sure it's destroyed and not diverted back? And and everybody's working on that one to find the best way. I just want to sort of close the program our last uh, minute and a half here on, you know, is there is there a part of this problem that doesn't get as much publicity or as much, um, you know, notoriety as it should that you'd like to leave people with in, you know, maybe 30 seconds apiece? Uh, Courtney, why don't we, we start with you and we'll go down the line. What what do you want to leave people with that, that they might not have known or even thought about coming in? Probably to make use of the resources that are available. Our website has several things. Um, it's www.drugs.indiana.edu. Also, addiction needs to be – we need to think of addiction as a disease rather than, you know, someone's individual problem. Um, Let's move and, along you know, parents, <laughs> yeah, can just talk to their kids. Yeah, I think um, just uh, from a treatment standpoint at least is that anybody who has any questions or concerns, they really do need to reach out for help. Um, I think IPRC is a great resource. Uh, Centerstone, we have the Recovery Engagement Center that's on the corner of 7th and Rogers. Um, and it really is for family members, people who have questions, you know, somebody who just wants to come in, what do we do? Um, you know, we're struggling with the kids. So reaching out is really important. And Dennis, real quick. Hey, real quickly, uh, if you're a parent, educate your kids and get your medicine out of your cabinets and destroyed. Uh, If you're a practitioner, take the necessary training and do all the checks that the leading organizations uh, want you to do, the urine test, the inspect. And then lastly, uh, if you're uh, a young adult thinking about experiment, you, you have to respect these drugs. They can kill you and only take these drugs under a doctor's care. All right. Well, our thanks to the three of you. We're out of time. For Sarah Whitmire, Mike Pashkash, Rachel Lyon, Louis Peterson, I'm Stan Jastrzewski saying thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.